everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. And you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And as you guys know, this podcast is brought to you by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And they have a lot of services to the everybody out there in the public. So they're not limited to first responders. They just have a specialized program. Please check it out if that's something that you think that you or a loved one can benefit from. And again, that's FHEHealth.com. And Folks, I have a very special guest today, and uh, our guest is Amanda Coleman, and I, w- I just kind of want to set this up how we met. I, It was really nice here in Washington, D.C. in May to get back to Police Week. So every year, uh, we have Police Week in Washington, D.C., and it has there's a lot of different functions, a lot of different activities and celebrations, you know, both uh, celebratory and somber at the same time. And they, uh, of course, honor all of the fallen uh, police officers here in the United States because we have the Law Enforcement Memorial here. And so this all centers in Washington, D.C. So I've been a part of it for many, many years. Uh, In fact, back in my FBI days, I would uh, do breakout groups in 12-step meetings at the headquarters, which was held downtown in one of the hotels. Well, COVID's taken a lot of that away, and this is the first police week that I've been to. Uh, during all this this time, and I uh, went down and saw some of my friends from FHE Health, our, our sponsor. A couple of individuals were down there and got to hook up with them, and they said, hey, Mike, we want to introduce you to some people, and uh, we want to introduce you to this woman, Amanda. Amanda Coleman, you've got to meet her. And I was like, why do I need to meet Amanda? They said, she's a fantastic person, real big supporter of this cause and wellness, and she's somebody that you have to have on your show, and we just got to connect you guys. And so I went over and went to their booth and met Amanda and just a phenomenal person. She's Irish. And as you're going to see, the name of her organization is Irish Angel. And she's going to tell us all about it. But uh, she told me about all the great work that they're doing. And she told me how she got into this uh, into this endeavor, this line of work. And I really, really like the cause that she's involved in and thought that all of you would benefit from hearing about the work that they're doing because this is certainly, certainly an important area. So with that, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Mike. Yeah, well, listen, I, I just kind of teed you up there as far as a little bit about how we met, but tell the audience who you are, where you're from, and why you're you're doing what you're doing. Oh, it's a long story. <laughs> Let me oh, go. <laughs> we have plenty of time. We have plenty of time. So... Um, so I come from Dublin in Ireland and um, I have family in law enforcement in Ireland and uh, we were going through our own troubles probably around 2015 I think it was it was around the run up to the election I know that and um, we were having our own trouble so I was kind of a bit annoyed because we couldn't talk about what was going on at home because it's very different law enforcement's very different as much as this, the same objective is there it's different in the respect of um, when you go to law enforcement in Ireland, you sign disclaimers and you can't talk about anything that goes on within the services 
everything goes through the Garda press office. So everything is policed, you know, um, and that kind of stuff. So I was annoyed and I was like, I would love to tell people how it really is. And he said, my cousin said to me, Amanda, you know, America is far worse than, than Ireland. You need to see what's happening in America. So I took to the internet and I, I did a little bit of research and I was horrified by what I was seeing. Um, police officers being ambushed in their cars, you know, like the the rhetoric that was being built up against them, the um, just the devastation of the families left behind. Um, and so I took to LinkedIn and I started to post messages of support. And it was kind of in and around the time that Blue Lives Matter was coming in, in, in around and... Um, Within two weeks, I was inundated with messages from law enforcement agencies across America thanking me for what I was doing, even though I had no clue that what I was doing was helping anybody. I just wanted them to know, look, it doesn't matter if I'm from here uh, from Ireland. I need, you know, people, people are watching and people are caring for you because we know the individuals behind the badge. And so it got to me that, that you know, I got handwritten letters, I got emails, I got everything. And some of them was was very, um, you could feel it in how they were writing, where they were saying, you know, they felt that everything that they were doing was in vain. And um, you could tell it had a profound impact on how they are as, as individuals. So I kept up the support. And um, then a SWAT team actually in Virginia um, got together and gave me an honorary call sign, which was Irish Angel. Um, and so because they did that for me and I had seen so much hatred towards them online, I had a website built that was username and password for people to go on and talk about their, um, just talk about, have that camaraderie and, and a safe place for them to talk. So we would share news, we would talk about, you know, just stuff in general that was going on within the law enforcement first responder community. And, um, I, in the meantime, I had to kind of educate myself because as much as we're very, very similar countries, we're different in the stance of politics and um, and just in the, the American way, the culture versus the Irish culture. And um, I, I had to learn about the Constitution. I didn't want to go into this ignorant and not understand it all. And, you know, so I did. I, I educate myself on it and. And uh, I fell in love with the American way because it reminded me of my own country years ago. Um, and so I then realized about the veteran community, having veterans homeless on the streets and and the mental health aspect and the suicides. And then I w was watching the banter on the website to and from between police officers. Um, and I realized it triggered something in me because I come from a family that has addiction and mental health issues um, and I grew up in a household with that and it was very, I could see, I could just tell some of the signs. So I knew, as I said, the um, suicide rate was, was climbing within the veteran community, but I, when I educated myself on law enforcement and the first responder community, I was blown away because I had no clue and it's something that's not very public knowledge. Um, of of it rising and you were getting to the point where it was like nearly double the amount of officers die through suicide versus what they do on the job so um because it's something that's close to my heart um the whole mental health and addiction aspect of things um and my following was growing massively 
um, a friend of mine who is a sheriff in Schenectady said to me, Amanda, he says, what do you want to do with all this following? He said, people love you. And I'm like, well, I don't really know why. But <laughs> I said, I would love to be able to help people. Um, but I said, not just about raising awareness. I want to physically be able to help people. But I said, I'm not an American citizen, so I can't really do anything. And he says, you're not an American citizen. He said, but I am. He says, um, and I believe in you, he said. And he said, let's let's do something to help out these first responders. So um, I did some research on what was needed um, went out to a couple of treatment facilities that helps those in crisis within the, the first responder community. Um, and I asked, apart from the stigma, because we all know how bad the stigma is, but what is the other uh, the other obstacle that gets way of them you know getting help and um the consensus was that even though some treatments are covered nearly all treatments is covered under insurance or through the departments um sometimes it's not and they get do scholarship schemes for them um, but they said the transportation is not covered on it. And a lot of the time if an officer is in crisis, whether it's through addiction and mental health, their their financials has gone by the wayside too so they can't always afford the treatment if it's out of state to go to so I was like that's where we need to start so um we I, I went back with the plans and I'm like right well we need to make sure that we give them every opportunity to go and get the help they need so we devised a plan to build Irish Angel and uh, we got our 501c3 back in December 2019 um and then we were just launching in Boston in March of 2020 and COVID hit. So that put a spanner in the works, to say the least. Um, so then we tried online fundraising and then the riots happened. And that in itself just crippled us because, you know, here you have, we were auctioning off, we were doing online auctions, we were auctioning off, you know, um, sports memorabilia. And all of a sudden you have, the sports people, you know, coming out against law enforcement um, and then the riots companies didn't want to get involved with us because they didn't want to be associated with people who were so pro-police um, and for fear of what would happen to their business, which is understandable given given what was actually going on at the time. Um, it really it really hindered us. So we didn't think we'd come out of us, um, but thankfully we did. We kicked it off, finally kicked it off in October last year. And since then, um, we've sent three people for to get their treatments um, so since January. So um, we're happy it's starting to, you know, come into fruition finally after all of these years. Um, but yeah, so that's the main objective is to make sure that we try and educate people as well um, surrounding different uh, training techniques that will help protect officers when they're doing their job. Um, and also when it comes to um, just showing them, you know what, there's people out there who are exactly like you, brothers and sisters, who has hit rock bottom um, and they've clawed their way to the top. And now they're living, they manage their PTS and they manage their addictions. Every day is a struggle, but they, they do it and they it instills it in the hope that it, it instills hope into those who are struggling. So um, it's very important. You know, hope is all we got. Um, and and to show them that they're not alone, that we can, you know, we want to give everybody a fighting chance to get the help they need. They need it. It's really important. Yeah, that that is. I, I didn't realize that as you were starting 
<laughs> March, uh, not only not just 2020, that was the kickoff of the pandemic, but it was literally March of 2020. And then to have yeah. all of the, the riots and the cities burning and the backlash, you know, yeah. against police officers. Yeah, that was a really, really difficult time. <clears throat> and I know that when I go around the country and, and the listeners, you guys know that I participate in what's known as the post uh, post critical incident seminars and <clears throat> and I go and I talk to the different groups and the these seminars bring people in br- bring first responders in and, it, and it's usually a critical incident whether it's a shooting a fight car chase looking at too many dead babies child pornography mm-hmm. what are all the things that we do in law enforcement and that's the trauma that brings them to our seminars but as we go around the room, and day one in all these seminars that we do, we go through each person. It could be up to like 30 officers or first responders, and they'll talk about what brought them there. And as we start to work with the trauma, what we find is two things. Um, really, the larger trauma than even the incident that brought them to us is how they're treated by their agency. They, they don't feel like their agency is supporting them the way that they feel like they should be traded, or sometimes the agency is re-traumatizing them with administrative mm-hmm. procedures. And then, as you mentioned, the city's burning down and the public turning on them. Um, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that now where, you know, people in this profession suffer trauma every single day. You know, if you're in the military, like I'm a veteran, um, you do suffer trauma, no doubt about it, but it's in spurts. And then, then you have period, you have deployment cycles that you come off of those cycles and you have a long period where you're not actually out in those danger areas. But, you know, when you're a first responder, you're getting that trauma every single day, it, but there's no deployment cycle. It, it just continues on for daily, over the years, throughout your whole career. And to... But but both, most of us understand that we are making that sacrifice. Our families suffer. We suffer physically, emotionally, spiritually, and we get that. That's part of coming into this business. But what you don't expect is the public turning on you the way that the public did over the last two years. And that, that just made all of the trauma that much worse. And uh, I've, I've been dealing that with that in the work that I do quite a bit. Uh, is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah. Um, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, I, I, every time people often say to me, you know, Amanda, why do you post the news as a nonprofit? Why do you often post the news? I think we owe it to the public to understand exactly what you guys see every single day on the streets, um, what you experience, why you react every, you know, every negative, Every negative um, situation that a police officer runs into every day has a profound impact on their well-being, on how they act, they how they react to things. Um, and so my whole thing on it is if they did a traffic stop and 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 the police officer is, you know, he's he's going hammer and tong at, at somebody within the, the police car. I always say to them, you know, you don't know where he's after coming from or what he's just after seeing. Um, that that's the thing, you know, they see things that us mere mortals will never want to see or, you know, um, we would never experience in a lifetime. And I think there needs to be a better understanding um, of exactly what people go through. Um, and if that means sharing the news, then that means sharing the news because they need to know. Um, I think the fact that the public is so bitter and so um, they're just, there's a lot of them that are 
towards them they as soon as they hear law enforcement you know like and i've spoken to them before straight away they're they're arguing the point and they're um have i'm sorry my phone the phone in the room is ringing i don't know mm-hmm. why <laughs> um but they're they're arguing the point with you and they just don't want to hear it mm-hmm. and if somebody doesn't want to hear what's going on i mean how are they ever supposed to learn from it so i believe we have to educate people on that but the Getting back to the whole thing about um, from their peers, from the government and from from the street. It's one thing a police officer going and doing his daily job and having that trauma um, that they do see. And it's like you said, it does come in sports, but all of it's like an onion. It layers and it layers and it layers and it layers. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in 2020 mm-hmm. where you have riots, you have people being as nasty as possible to you they're doing uh the reform they're talking about you know the bail reform which makes your work even harder how you tactically go at people which Mm -hmm. leaves leaves you within those um situations where you're going to you're you're basically getting into it with somebody and you have to think within that split second oh i better not touch him here or this could happen to me or you know or and then you're leaving yourself wide open for for everything that's going on mm-hmm. um for bigger things happen basically so um yeah i, I just and then the immunity being taken away in certain states as well that just adds to it so it's a constant beat down you know it's just a they can't cut a break and I, you know like one of our board of directors joe great great guy he does not he if you asked him two years ago if he wanted to retire he was like nah i'm gonna ride it out and you know so he was due to retire in five years he's retiring next year now he's handed in his papers and he's like amanda he said we could be arrested he said, if we do our jobs, he said, we could be murdered. Yeah. He said, we could be, um, we could be sued. He said, it's just a constant beat down. He said, it's actually not worth it now. He said, it's not that we don't want to do the job. We're just not let do the job. He said, and that has a profound impact on how people are feeling. And that's why there's this mass exodus from law enforcement, you know, um, and it's scary, realistically, because you have the younger kids coming in who would normally be trained with the veteran cops um, out in the streets. But now they're going to lose an awful lot of that, too. So they're leaving themselves very vulnerable, too. You know, so it's a every every action has a reaction and and um, not always a positive one. So, no, it's interesting that you say that because. I'll just share with you, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. When I first went into the FBI, um, and this was pre-Muller, this was, uh, Louis Free was still the director. This would have been um, early 1999. And I remember being in my first office and, you know, you would have the old timers, you know, in the office, the old agents that were there. Some of them were like Hoover era, you know, agents. And these guys just had such a, a love for the organization. They, it, with the FBI, some agencies, but definitely the FBI has a mandatory retirement age, which is 57 for agents. Um, <clears throat> so these people would get, well, first of all, they would they would go all the way to the end until they were 57, and then they would have to go. 
And, and it was just so sad because these guys would not want to leave. I, I remember there was a guy on one of my squads the day of his retirement. <laughs> he just sat in the corner and it was like, okay, you, you, have to, you have to leave now. And no, I don't want to go. And we, we went up to him and he had tears in his eyes and we had to walk him out to the door. And it was, it was just so sad because it was like he was giving up this, this life and this job that he loved. Now, yeah. that was in 1999. Um, by the time I got close to retirement, eligible. Now, first of all, I, I retired shortly after I was eligible. So there's a big difference. I was eligible as opposed to this guy being mandatory. And uh, my academy class, when I went through, so all of us that stayed in the FBI, uh, you know, every year we would do like a group email amongst each other just to catch up, you know, find out where, you know, who got married, who got divorced, who had kids, you know, where, where have people trained, you know, where their career is going, just catching up, those types of emails. And when we, we got to the point to where my class was eligible to retire, the, the question was posed to the class, hey, how many of you are staying after we're eligible? And do you know what the answer to that was? Huh. None. Not one person had plans of staying beyond being eligible. So just think of the difference. Now, what was the difference was, you know, all these years had passed and, and the public had turned on law enforcement. Of course, we've seen, you know, the the, the FBI has become very controversial and some of the things that have been done over the, the, the last few years. But it just, there's this malaise. And, and I guess my, my point being is that the malaise that you're talking about is local, state, and even the federal law enforcement agencies. You know, nobody wants to stay in the profession. And likewise, um, very, very few young people want to go into the profession because you just think, why would I go into that? Why would I go into that profession and put myself at risk the way that these people are putting themselves at risk? And we hear it. And when we when we do the, the, the seminars and we discuss trauma, like I, I mentioned earlier, oftentimes the discussion goes from the actual traumatic incident to, hey, I, I'm really just bothered at how the public treats us, and I feel like my entire career has been for nothing. And that's that's not good, and it's not good for the mental health. It's not good that people retire feeling as though their entire careers were in vain. You know, they sacrifice their families, yeah. in many cases, sacrifice their, their health. I have health conditions uh, now, today, that I know are an absolute direct result of my my years of, of service to the country. And that's, and, and people just, it, that depresses you to think, you know, I really gave of myself and there's zero appreciation from the public. Now, now I know that that's not true, Amanda. I know that, you know, the vast majority of the American public appreciates the work that, that first responders do, but you know, you know how it is. We, we focus on the negative. We don't focus on the positive, but that's a lot of the work that you're doing, isn't it? You know, getting that support out to the first responders and, and letting them know that they're appreciated and then helping them and enabling them to get the help that they need. Of course, uh, that's that's so important, you know, because there needs to be a little beacon of light. Like I know I'm only we're only one organization, but the way I see it is, and I've said this, I was saying this earlier on, I was on another podcast. And for me, um, it's a bit like when you drop a pebble into an ocean, although it only makes a tiny splash, the ripple effect is huge. So um just by us doing that bit of positivity and and the the word spreading, um, then that that can only do good things. And if you can manage to hit one one person a day, you've done something good, you know. Um, and it, it's it's very important that we get our message out there. They they understand that somebody's out there has their six. Um, but the way I see it now is even with the public because there's so much strife going on in the in the country right now, um particularly over the last what 18 months 
um, to two years, they uh, they see the level of violence. So even the people that would have been normally against law enforcement is slightly coming around now mm-hmm. because they're tired of the the constant um, vandalism and and people being hurt and people being killed. And you know, someone has got to uphold, uphold the law. You know, so people can they can bitch and moan on they want all they want about law enforcement, but at the end of the day, it's law enforcement they pick up the phone to when they're when they're in need. Um, and I think they're finally realizing that because they're seeing so much carnage around the country, you know, um, in places that you would never even imagine. And I even seen like one of the celebrities who was it today? Um, oh, uh, is it Wilson? I can't think of his force. Is it Owen Wilson? I think, but even in LA, uh, he came out this morning. His Tesla is destroyed. Has no wheels, and you know, and everything else. Like four thousand dollars worth of wheels gone. Um, and I'm like, what do they expect? What do people actually expect? So you know, we need law enforcement, but mm-hmm. they need. It's all very well and good having law enforcement on the streets, but if you have their hands puffed behind their back. That's no good. It's just another figure standing on the street. I mean, that's that's costing the state money. You know, realistically, they need to be able to do their job. Um, I remember, I remember a time years and years ago. I think it was uh, late nineties, maybe. And Giuliani was a uh, he was the the mayor in um, New York, mm-hmm. and. Ireland was experiencing a lot of violence at the time and troubles and what have you. So they brought over um, a police commissioner from the NYPD because of the no tolerance policing that was going on in in, United, or in in New York. And that the streets all of a sudden, just as soon as he went in, everything started to change. Things started to turn. And we were considering doing it in our country. Um, and so how it was great then to it not being good now. And the level of crime that there is now versus then, I just think is insane. It's absolutely insane. It's worse now than it's ever been. I, I like literally just watched a video this morning of um, a man who was stabbed um, in the subway. And they're trying to find the, the guy who stabbed him. And this is all out there for the public. And you're just like, my God, how did we go from a, a time where people, police were respected by even criminals to now everyone just out with their phone, not giving, not giving a damn what happens to them um, and just criticizing them and criticizing their every move and them just not being able to do the job that they're paid to do. Um, and in, in not doing it, it's, it's leaving the place wide open to, to people being harmed, murdered and, and, and carnage happen. It's just not right, you know? Yeah. And it has a, on how they are mentally i just don't understand how we got here i just i really don't the world is a really not a nice place right now no so it's, it's not not and a nice place for us it's definitely not a nice place for those in service no it's not and when you when you go around the country uh you know whether it's in ireland or, or here but you since you're here you're, you're in boston as we speak right now and when you talk to police officers what is the uh What's the general impression on the, like the mental health and, and addiction and, you know, cause that's really what you're supporting and the, yeah. the focus of, you know, this podcast is, you know, working with people and, and talking about recovery and getting help, you know, what, but what is your general sense and how officers are reacting to all of this and the impact that it's happening on, on them and their mental health and physical health, spiritual health, emotional health, all that. 
Um, it's not good. Um, like it, it's it's funny they talk about it, but yet they'll go and and sit in a bar and and drink themselves stupid, you know. And um, they know the issues is there, but do they want the help? Um, probably not, because everything is so up in the air right now. Um, you know, it's it's literally a case of good versus evil, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's like literally what else in their minds mind's eye. It's like what else do we have? You know, they they have to try and drown out the negativity and 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 the lack of support, I suppose, that they have um, on top of a normal job. Um, so they know it. Look, it's getting better as in the point of everybody is talking about mental health now. Mm-hmm. And I, I see a, a tiny culture change within um, departments uh, and leaders, leadership Um there's still a lot of the old school mentality about um, mental health and addiction, but um, slowly but surely the tides are changing. Um, it's just really not a good time, I think, for a lot of those who are in crisis. To they feel it's not a good time for them to give up because what in their mind's eye it's like what else do we have? And then you face like they call it the rubber gun squad. Uh, that's a massive thing for them too, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so as much as they know it's there they and deep down they probably know they have an issue you know they the first step to recovery is when you actually admit you have a problem and and i believe a lot of them know they have a problem but it's taking that next step to get help when there's already so much despair i suppose around you know and and um so as much as I can understand understand the mentality, um, but having said that, they ju- it's only because they just don't know what it's like to live without that crutch. Um, yeah, I no, yeah. I I could not agree with you more. And you know, you talked about the rubber gun squad, and I think that that's one of the great myths that that is out there. And and I know that a, a lot of first responders are going to be listening to what I'm saying right now. They're going to say, yeah, Mike, but you don't understand my agency. My agency will pull you off the street and penalize you in a heartbeat. And that's uh, what I'm telling you is I uh, spent many, many years in the FBI and I do. Uh, I was a police officer myself and I've been around. I'm around a lot of police departments right now. The fact is, if you uh, reach out to get help, it's not as bad as you think. And in fact, it might surprise you at how... Uh, how people really respect what you're doing and you can help others. That's, I think to a large degree, that's the great myth is that you will be penalized for getting help. The one thing I will say about American society today is we are starting to understand more and more the disease of addiction and calling it a disease. And first and foremost, let me, let me just say this. It is what, if, if you are somebody that's struggling with alcohol, I'm going to just say with alcohol, uh, for example, and opiates, it could do to injuries in law enforcement. Um, those are the two biggies that we have. Alcohol, certainly, and then uh, uh, opiates, which are starting to catch up to maybe even overtake alcohol as being problematic. If you suffer from that, you, you have... Uh, you're going to be somebody that has the disease of addiction, and it is considered a disease. If you go to a local emergency room, you go to a treatment center, the doctors are going to be talking to you about your disease. They are not going to be talking to you about how you're not a good husband, police officer, father, uh, brother, mother, whatever. 
it's going to be the disease. And that's why your insurance companies pay for your treatment because the insurance companies recognize it as being a disease. So if you face any repercussions in your agency, they're breaking the law. They're breaking the law. And there are a lot of people that will come around you to support you if you run into that. Now, I'm happy to report that that does not happen very often. In fact, I'm, I've not been involved in a case where we've had to challenge that because everybody recognizes it. The problem is that the individual, the, the problem's not so much the agency that I have found. The problem is the person that's suffering from addiction and convincing them that what I just said to you is true. They are the ones that keep themselves from getting help. And the disease of addiction and the disease or mental health issues, the danger with that is, you know, addiction, and I've said this before, addiction is the disease that you have that tells you that you don't have it even though it's painfully obvious to everybody else around you that you do. You're the person that doesn't see what everybody else does. And that's our big challenge. And, you know, the problem, I think, is that people think that their job as a police officer, as important as it is, it is not the only thing on the planet. I did. I was not born a police officer or an FBI agent, and I'm not going to leave this world as a police officer or uh, an FBI agent. And, you know, at some point you're going to leave this profession, and hopefully, God willing, you have many years of a life to live after that. The problem is you don't want to destroy <laughs> your life before you get to the point where you can enjoy your life. But that's, exactly. it should be an easy sell for people, but it's not. Is that what you're running into as well? Yeah, definitely. That's what I mean. It's like right now, because of all the negativity that's going on, they feel like, you know, what else have they got? But realistically, so why would they want to give it up? But realistically, I think genuinely think it's because they've gone all these years without knowing what it's like to actually physically live and feel and, and and love you know what i mean because you become this different person when you're when you're um consumed with alcohol or whatever it is that you're you're using as a crutch um that that takes over your life um and so you don't know how to feel normal again you know and they think that's the only thing that helps them feel normal um so it's how do you get them away from that mindset that you know life begins once you stop mm-hmm. abusing your your body and oftentimes you're very depressed, and when you put alcohol on on top of your depression, alcohol is a depressant. So it is you're trying to fix yeah. your depression by putting by pouring a depressant on top of your depression. I agree. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. My mom, my mom suffered with PTS through grief. My brother died in '93, and um, she abused alcohol and prescription meds since since then well she was kind of doing a little bit before but Dave when David died it kind of it, it kind of just stirred it on even more and um you know we went through periods of our lives where it was horrible like it was just she didn't know her own name half the time and um and so her, she would lash out and it, it was just it was a really really tough life to be perfectly honest but to watch her deteriorate um in herself and then you know, she neglected herself so much as in with respect to abusing herself with alcohol and prescription meds that she didn't notice that she was tearing at her skin all the time. And, you know, I will never forget it. Um, she called me one night at three o'clock in the morning to go around to her, her house and she had like tissue on the sofa, like piled to the brim covered in blood. And she had been she said, I knew there was something in my skin and she, she was pointing to like these black things on, on a little piece of paper she had. Um, she said, I told you I have mites or something in my skin, she said. So um, I got it tested. Um, 
it turned out it was flesh and it was it was due to every time that she would drink um she would have these episodes where she would tear out her skin and she would become she would start thinking all sorts and in her mind it was very very real um, and so the doctor just looked at me and she said, Amanda, this is not good. She said, this is flesh. She said, your mom is self-harming herself and she doesn't even know it. Um, it's the drink that triggers it off. It's it's the, the medicines and everything else on top of the depression that she has. So she says, your mom now has something called parapsychosis. So um, that's what they treated her for. And um, she was doing great for the longest time. And, and then they changed her drug to a generic drug. And she again started to drink on them and then it was making her sleep all the time. So she stopped taking them and then she started it. The whole thing started again. And the doctor had told me when I went in there, if we can get to the root cause of this, the addiction will stop. Um, if we so then had to basically take her off of all of her meds and retrain her to to take her medicines again and rightly rightly so she didn't now she'd have the occasional drink she'll just have one or two not even two I don't think anymore but um but it just it's like a different person so it's amazing how much the alcohol and the drugs can trigger trigger that imbalance in somebody's brain so they don't know how to feel as a normal person again and it was only when all that was stripped back that you realize holy god the, the, this is the impact of what alcohol and drugs can have on you mm -hmm. you know and it's quite frightening and when you're dealing with somebody who has a gun or somebody in, you know within the law enforcement community that's that's dangerous territory you're in mm -hmm. you know and that hence the, hence the, there's a lot of people out there who take their own lives um in law enforcement um, so, you know, it's if that's a normal person, what is somebody who's in the service going through? You know, not to say that that would happen like my mom, but I mean, in general, um, that's just she's I'm just using her as an example um, that the average person can feel that way. So what are these guys feeling? I can't even imagine, you know. It's oh, just, I heard it said once that uh, we I was at a conference recently and one of the presenters said that when it comes to suicide, and you run the numbers, we in law enforcement are actually a greater danger to ourselves than than to the public. We yeah, are harming ourselves at the, the same issue. rate that the public is 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 doing. But yet, there are very few academies, um, none in the area in which I live that I'm aware of, that even discuss the things that we are talking about while in the academy. You know, think about that. Uh, we teach shooting, certainly. Defensive tactics, uh, arrest procedures, uh, search and search and seizure procedures, all those different, all the different police stuff that you need to know. But the one discussion that we don't have in and we don't do any training on in the police academies is the the, the things that we're talking about: the um, wellness, uh, taking care of yourself, uh, the the dangers of addiction, being careful of those types of things, mental health, and that the the. I mean, you know, the fact is that you know we why do we why do we train to shoot? Why do we train to use defensive tactics? Because there's dangers out there, and we have to be prepared for that, and we have to fend against it. But yet, like I just said, we we are as great a harm to ourselves as the the public is to us. But yet, we do almost no training in that area, and that's got to change. Yeah. It's got to change. It has to change, you know, like because it's so funny. Um, 
part of the whole culture thing. So if we could change the culture from the top down and then f- implement it into into the academy, that would make such a big difference because we train. You know, it's it's so funny that police officers throughout their career become conditioned. They well, let's be real. They don't technically become conditioned to what they see. They pretend they become conditioned to what they see. That's uh, a good dif- um, a good distinction right there. Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, where we where in in what should be done really is that resiliency should be built from the bottom up, um, so that they're prepared for what they're going to see, uh, or what they're going to experience, um, because, you know, the harsh reality of life is that mud is going to be slung at you and you're going to see things that like would make milk curdle, you know, that the average person wouldn't want to see. Um, and you'll experience the hypervigilance. You will experience the adrenaline dumps that you will. And they all have an impact on your well-being. So um, I think if if that's taught through the academies, um, you know, then it's given them a little insight as to what's to come. Because nothing, I think, can prepare you for what you will experience. But if we if we can in some way stop mollycoddling everything and, and start being real, um, then it might give the younger people a, a chance, you know, especially given that the veteran cops are not going to be around to help them out now. So mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something that needs to change within within the academies for sure. And. Keeping your priorities straight, and if you're listening to this podcast and you're new to law enforcement, I'm going to say, and I know that this will blow over many people's heads and and they're not going to understand it, but making yourself, your life, your health, both mental, physical health, and your family's health, and that's a big part of it too, because um, even though you may be getting through a tough area in your career. Think about the impact that it has on on your family. Um, and I'm saying that because a lot of times we put ourselves in situations that are horrendous for ourselves and horrendous for our families. And there's times when we sh- we can pull ourselves out of that situation and don't for fear of weakness. I was, uh, interestingly enough, I was talking to an individual earlier this week that was in one of those situations. He got promoted into a, a position that he thought that the, it was what he wanted, but he went into the position and turned out that it was not good. It was not a good situation for a lot of different reasons. And uh, the specifics of that are not really important to the, the point that I'm making here. But uh, I, I asked this individual, I said, do you have to stay in this position? And the answer was no, he did not have to stay in this position. And I'm like, well, why, then why are you there? I mean, you're, you were doing well, your family was doing well, and now it seems like this position is just um, creating a situation for you that is just not healthy for anybody. And the response was, but if I, if I, if I leave this position, which I know that I can, then I'm afraid, now listen to what he was saying here, I am afraid that those around me will look at me as though I am weak. Okay. He didn't say that they would. He said he feels that the people around him would look at him as though he were weak. And so, therefore, he continues to place himself in a situation that he knows is bad for him and he knows is bad for his family for fear. He's not – listen very closely to this. The fear is not that my wife will have a problem with this. Or my family will have a problem with it. Because, in fact, he was telling me that his family actually supports him in making that decision 
His fear is that his peers at work will look down on him. So therefore, he continues on in a bad situation. And I think that, you know, if you take a real hard look at yourselves, if you're a first responder and you're listening to this, you actually fear the opinions of others that you work with more than you do the people that you're married to and you contributed to their birth to. And I, I challenge people and listen, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers because I was like that for many, many, many years. Um, when I'm retired, you know, now that I'm retired, guess who's still with me? My wife and my children. Um, mm-hmm. Guess who's not with me? Guess who, guess who never calls to ask me to see how I'm doing the people I work with. Okay. Yeah. It, it's, but, but yet I've got, I have that wife at home that supported me the entire time. And, and I'm not picking on this individual, but I'm saying you, I'm, I'm just challenging people to take a good hard look at that and really look at what your priorities in your life are. Um, and I, we had a long discussion and I just hope that this individual realizes that your long-term health and the health of your family ultimately is more important. And if it means that you're not in a position or doing something that you wanted to do for a long time, then maybe that's what you want to do. Because, uh, you know, being in those positions, there are other people that can do those jobs. Um, I, 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 it's just amazing to me that we will go down that self-destructive route so quickly and then, and sometimes we know that we're going down that route, but still do nothing about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. Um, I totally get it, and it's, it's. I, I, you know, I find it heartbreaking that that's the case because realistically, you know, um, and getting onto retirees, but it's like you give your life to law enforcement, right? And you're in these people are in their careers, like. 20, 25, 30, 35 years. That is a massive amount of your life gone um, and dedicated to an organization. And you built up another family within that organization. Um, but you are just another number to them, not necessarily to the people that you you built friendships with, the, but to the organization, you are another number. Um, when you leave, you're gone. You know, you you no longer have that tie as much as, you know, once blue, always blue. You're always going to have that in, in you, but you will not be a part of that department anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is a very harsh realization to that, I think, when retirees leave for some. Some retire and some are fine, but some retire and some are not fine. Some take their own lives um, and it goes undocumented. And mm-hmm. that's because they feel they have no purpose. The phone stops ringing. People stop coming over. You know, um, they feel like they have no skills. What have they got to offer the world? The life in, in the department's going on without them and they're no longer a part of that. And it's it's it, it's a grieving process for them, you know, but you are just another number um, within an agency. And I hate to say that, you know, and you're absolutely right about the families, you know, because... They will be the ones that's there supporting you. But you see, the problem is, is like you were lucky. Obviously, the divorce rate is really high within mm-hmm. law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is officers who come home and for the want of protecting their loved ones, they don't talk. 
And then sure, that causes nothing but trouble. Then the wife is saying, you know, or the husband is saying, well, why don't you tell me how your day is? And they're like, just leave me be. I just don't want to talk about it. You know, just leave me time to decompress. And they can't understand why you're saying that. And that causes strife in itself. Um, And so uh, for the families, I'm very passionate about the families because I've been that I've been a family of uh, who's lived through through um, someone with substance abuse and and, um, mental health. And it's it's not easy. It doesn't just affect the individual that it's happening to. It actually affects the whole family. Um, And so for me, the families are just as important because if you go in for, you know, this for treatment um, you're going in one person you're going to come out another person so whilst you've had those six weeks or whatever it is to adjust to to your new lifestyle your family doesn't know or recognize who this person is anymore mm-hmm. and they're not complaining it's great to see you well and healthy but they're probably a lot of the time they can still be stuck in that argumentative not understanding mentality and picking and picking and picking and, and because they don't know no different. So I think the families needs to have an adjustment period where, with um, with their new husband or their new wife to figure out, you know, this isn't the same person. How do we react to this person? Because you can't go through all of that um, and your marriage survive and then all of a sudden you come out and you don't know this person and you're the one, the wife is now, or the husband that's at home is the one becoming the problem because they're still in that argumentative um, mentality if that makes sense so yeah. it's, it's it's a massive adjustment for both but I, ha- I think realistically I think the family should be brought in on a certain part of the on a certain part of the treatment near the end to so that they have a better understanding of it too because it's an adjustment and sometimes it can be a difficult one because they're so used to one person that they've lived with all their lives that's been this you know negative um, just bad karma kind of a person because that or bad aura kind of a person. So, you know, it's an adjustment for everybody. And if they can, if you can survive that, then you're, you know, you're set plain sailing for the rest of your days together. But it takes a certain type of individual to stick around and and to bear with it, um, and not be resentful for it. So, um, but it's a process that you have to work through together to um to make it work. Very well said. And I think that we don't, that's something we don't do enough of is work with, with the families. And we try, my wife and I uh, try, my wife does a lot of work with families and, and that's something that we're trying to do more of because you're absolutely right. But this is an open field because uh, there's not been a lot done in it. Uh, I know that my entire career, uh, both local and federal law enforcement and the military did a much better job at working with families, but um, still there's a lot of work to be done there as well. But, you know, so just as, as we close out, could you just give um, the listeners maybe a lay of the land, you know, what, so you're here in Boston, obviously, you're from Ireland, and I know you're here for um, just a little while longer, maybe a month or so. Um, what is it that you're doing? What's kind of the future of Iris Angel? What, what, what are you guys doing and what's the, the kind of the future plan here for you guys? Um, well, so far we're going around um, different states because we want to open more chapters. The more chapters we have open, the more fundraising we can do, which means the more people we can send for treatment. 
um, and then the more uh, more education we can we can bring to um, the different states. So that's what I've been doing over here. I've been going around and building teams within different areas. So we're just about to do Florida, Colorado, um, we just opened Texas, um, Chicago. And where's the other one? I know I have another one somewhere. <laughs> and hopefully Virginia, actually. So um, we have an, oh, Arizona, did I say Arizona? I know there's seven in total and there'll be mm-hmm. eight with Virginia. With Virginia. So, um, yeah, so the more the more we can open up, the more we can spread the word, the more, the more we can help people. That's, that's the be all and end all for me is to be able to be that resource for people to be able to get the help they need when they need it. It's so important. You know, everybody, everybody in the world has a right to live the life that they want to live and live a happy and live it well. But for those, I think the people that go out and sacrifice, sacrifice their own lives to help us, they deserve a little bit more, you know, um, because they're too hard on themselves that they don't realize that they're, they're valued and they're loved and, and um, it's up to us to make that happen. So it's really important. That's very well said. So if the listeners want to contact you, donate to the organization, or uh, just get more information, how would they do that? Yeah, you can go to irishwork, or you can email myself, amanda.irishangel at gmail.com. Um, and we're always looking for people to volunteer and to, you know, to get involved. So if you feel that it might be something that you can add value to, then please, please reach out to us because um, the more we build this a bigger team, the better we, the better resources we can have for people, you know. Yeah. And um, I think you broke up there for a minute. So if you didn't catch it, it's irishangel.org and uh, they're yeah. also on Facebook on there and um, also on, on Instagram. I'm sorry? We're on all the social media platforms. Right. Instagram and TikTok, right? And yeah, Twitter and all that kind of good all stuff. That, well. All that good stuff. All the good social media that's out there. Um, see, there are good uses for social media. We always we bash there social is. media quite a bit. But, hey, we use that stuff too. But irishangel.inc. And um, it, it's great work. And... Um, you know, folks, if you, if you ever get a chance to meet Amanda in person, she's a lot of fun. She's, <laughs> I, I, I had a lot of fun with you at, at police week. It was just, it was great. And seeing all the, the people that, um, you know, y- you guys can tell from listening to her on this podcast, very personable, great storyteller. And she's even more so in, in, in public. And it was just a, a great honor to meet you. And, uh, I am here in Virginia. So we're, we're talking about making plans to get a, a chapter here in Virginia, and uh, we'll be talking more about that. And I look forward to doing some training. So, if you guys are listening, I hope to meet all of you out there as we continue forward with that. And any last words that you'd like to say before we close out? Oh, I just wonder if if it's it's the law enforcement and first responder community listening, and I just want to thank you all um, for all that you do because without you guys, I mean, chaos. Um, and never think that there's not people out there who love and support you one day um, good always has a way to prevail over evil as far as I'm concerned and the tides are turning we know that pendulum's going to swing back around so Irish Angel is here for you you need help at all whether it's even just to talk to somebody or you need a resource we're here for you just reach out to me directly it's amanda.irishangel at gmail.com and um, we will we will hook you up with who and where you need to go. So um, 
and just sending you all love. Oh, that's fantastic and very well said. Uh, so, folks, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral conditions like PTSD. And FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. So, guys, as always, I'd like to say that, you know, I don't represent any group. We're talking about Irish Angel. I mean, I don't represent Irish Angel, but uh, I do like to provide the opportunity for you to learn about, you know, some of these groups. And, you know, I don't represent anyone other than myself. And my only purpose in giving the information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it'll help you too. And um, these are great organizations. So if I've said anything that doesn't apply to you or if Amanda says some, said something that doesn't uh, that you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information you can use for yourself and help others as well because that's what we do in recovery is we help ourselves along the way while we try to impart our knowledge that we've gained to to you because it's helped us and so with that please visit our facebook page which is recovery is possible and our website which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com and let me know how i'm doing let me know if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about because i love hearing from you guys and we will get through this together and keep your head up because as amanda said the pendulum is swinging we love our police and first responders out there keep your heads up and we'll talk with you soon